Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. I'm really glad you could join me as today we get to speak with Jason Swanson, who's the Director of Strategic Foresight at KnowledgeWorks, where he works as a futurist, thinking about what the future of education may be. Jason's in New Zealand for the Future of Learning Conference, which is an event being held in Christchurch, New Zealand. And a big shout out to the team behind that conference, including Hamish, Cheryl, and Louisa, as they were the ones who connected me with Jason so I could do this interview. If you enjoy it, then you might want to check out some of the earlier interviews as well, because there's more than 130 in the back catalog. Now, if you're a fan of Seeds, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation because it's one of those ones where we talk about many different topics, ranging from the influence of his grandmother to his first job as a tattoo artist and what the key ingredients are for students to become lovers of education. Now, let's dive straight into this conversation with Jason. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Jason Swanson, who's the Director of Strategic Foresight at KnowledgeWorks. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. And we're here in New Zealand um, at the uh, Future of Learning Conference. So I really appreciate your taking your time out because um, there's some workshops running right now and we're having an interview instead. Well, hey, the pleasure's mine, and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, no worries. So what we do on this podcast is we try to go deeper with people and find out a bit about where they're from and what's been their journey to become who they are today. Um, so if we could just start and tell us a bit about where you're from. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm born and raised in Pennsylvania in the United States. Mm-hmm. Spent the majority of my life in the southeast corner of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, Chester County, known for rolling green hills and horses. And then seven years ago, I moved to the southwest corner of Pennsylvania. And now right. I live in Pittsburgh, the city of Pittsburgh, right. uh, known as you know, the Steel City. Yeah. So. so tell me a bit about the childhood that you had sort of growing up when you were, say, five or six years old. Absolutely. So very rural area at the time. Uh, it's very different now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a, a, I was raised in a house that my father built actually, um, with my uncles. Um, there was a small cul-de-sac of maybe four or five houses across the street. Um, and much of our free time in those days, uh, was really spent running around in the woods with my brother and my neighbors and pretending. My mom was generally my mom liked to keep us very busy, right? So uh, she was, uh, we'll say, an activities coordinator for us. So uh, when we weren't maybe running around the woods or kind of experiencing rural Pennsylvania life, Mm -hmm. played a lot of sports. I got very involved in martial arts at a young age. Uh, She's always taken us to museums and art lessons and and was very, very involved and um, really wanted us to kind of maximize our time, right? You know, sitting around the house was, was not, not an option for us. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it so was... So what had shaped her to be that sort of personality, or, or why do you think that was the way she was? Oh, that's a great question. She was a... grew up in a military family. Mm-hmm. So they, they moved, they lived everywhere uh, right. you could think of. So per, post-World War II, my grandfather being career military... Um, they, they've lived in Europe and Japan. She, she was born in Pittsburgh, actually. So me moving back to Pittsburgh is, it's, is kind right. of like a return home, right? Philadelphia, yeah, really everywhere you can think of. And I think that that constant activity made an impression on her. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that when she had children, it was very much like, okay, it's a big world. There's mm-hmm. a lot to do, mm-hmm. and um, we're just going to do it. And, and I, part of me thinks it was fairly interesting for her too, right? You right. know, to, to see the the world through the eyes of her two boys, and also, you know, maybe get to do some things that she's interested in through us as well. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's cool. She, it's a great attitude, though, as a parent to have, right? To give your, I mean, I've got young kids myself. The problem we find is that we can't physically go to everything. <laughs> yeah. And it becomes a case of actually only two activities per child because otherwise you'd just be driving all the time. <laughs> yeah, we, we would joke, you know, it was it was the taxi of mom. Right. You know, and uh but she she made it work and, and did the best she could and yeah. it 
kept us busy and kept kept it interesting. And you know, we joke around. I, I wonder like what our childhoods would have been like, you know, if we were to fast forward maybe eighteen years ahead, been mm. born when the internet was around. Yeah. You know, like with the hyper scheduling mom. Man, that would have been it. Would have been pr- pretty wild. I pretty think. Pretty intense. Oh, well, yeah. that was one thing I picked up on what you said. Actually, is um, it seemed like it was kind of outdoors, you know, martial arts, sports, that type of thing. You didn't mention technology and um, sort of the presence of you know computer games or things like that. So, what no. role was that given? Sort of your your role now, <laughs> and <laughs> and looking at at technology and what the future is. What what role did it play in your? Uh, very little, right? Mm. I, I, you know, we didn't get the internet. I didn't get the internet until I went to university. Mm. Where we were in, in rural Pennsylvania just wasn't really an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with cable television. You know, that wasn't something that came into my life. It never really significantly came into my life at all. Mm. Um, you know, at best in terms of technology, you know, growing up as a kid, Nintendo, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but even to this day, they're not, my, my parents aren't driven by technology by any means. So mm. uh, I guess it was an interesting turn that I'd, that ended up being a, a major driver in my life as part of my work and mm. looking at the effects of technological change in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, not not a real primary driver at all. Mm. So. No, it's it's fascinating though how how careers shape and, and move, isn't it? When For sure. You, when you think about the origins there. So did you know what you wanted to study sort of through high school years? Was there a plan or was it? Uh, <laughs> what, 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 what did you enjoy uh, studying? Maybe I'll p- phrase it that way. So I, I, the plan, it felt like the plan was just to get out of high school. Right. Um, I did really well in high school, but in spite of the system, not because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to to a fairly well-to-do school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the benchmarks of, of being a, a standard successful high school in the U.S. Uh, but, you know, this was the 90s. This is rural Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Things like personalized learning, right? That These are probably best whispered about, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, there's an SAT, sort of a standard achievement uh, test. And... Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the SAT, the PSSAs, yeah. and, and sort of that was like the the dawning of, you know, the summit of assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had great teachers, though, right? So I, I don't want to discount the great work that was being done. Mm. Uh, but my plan was just to kind of survive it mm. and, and get out of it and um, – my parents presented me <laughs> with an option, right? And they said, either you can go to university or you start paying rent. And at that point, I was like, you know, university sounds sounds great. Right. And again, that was part of that narrative of academic success. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to university. Uh, I applied to a, a handful of schools. Again, I, I didn't have a very strong vision for myself mm-hmm. for where I wanted to go. Uh, it was a little bit of flying by the seat of my pants and a lot of luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, I had a lot of friends that were all going to Westchester University, and they one friend owned a house. They're like, you should just come here. You should just live with us. Right. It's going to be great. And I was like, that will be great. Yes. Um, so I applied. I got in. Um, again, the major, I, I kind of picked a major at random. I interviewed at, at a, a bunch of the different schools and political science, kind of something about it mm-hmm. struck a chord with me. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the political science department was going to offer a new degree, and it was on uh, essentially research and survey methods, so primary research. Right. And they were like, we've never done it before. Would you be interested? And keeping with the theme of luck and flying by the seat of my pants, I was like, sure, great. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. But, <laughs> but you, I'll sign up. <laughs> well, you seem pretty confident I can get a job, right? And, right. you know, everything that you've told me thus far, uh, this at the time, the program director, seemed really appealing. Hmm. Um, so with that, I was off to Westchester. I had a major, right? Um, had a place to live. I wasn't paying rent at my parents' house. Right? Yep. Things looked pretty good. And, um, and possibly a job at the end of it. <laughs> hopefully, right? One hopes. Yeah. And, um, you know, th- this is where the luck comes in is I fell deeply in love with the program. Hmm. I fell in love with university life. Um, you know, it, it's somewhat funny that at that point in time, it, as part of your educational journey, as you age through it, you have more agency in it, right? Mm. From picking the major and picking the school and, you know, it's up to you when you go to class and all these things. So I fell deeply, deeply in love, not just with learning, but with education at this point. Right, interesting. Um, and it's it's something that stuck with me 
uh, to this day, right? Mm. I am you know, the eternal student. Yeah. Um, so, so, so you think it was a was it a unique set of circumstances that that helped that falling in love process with education, or at any other university, you think it would have been the same, or was it just this mm. unique combination of things? That's a great question. That's something I haven't really reflected on super deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. I tend to think maybe it was like the unique combination of mm. life circumstances, right? I'm living in this cool house with a bunch of my friends, right. um, you know, really having that feeling as most people do at that age, that you're, you're beginning to drive your own life, right? I'm making these decisions, uh, where I'm, I'm living, how, how am I spending my time? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was the, the combination of, of everything, right? Mm. So it's that that sum total that just kind of added up to mm. this and transformative. You're, kind of, you're finally autonomous. You're you're you've chosen this, and you don't know what you're studying yet, but I've chosen it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I really don't know, but yeah. it's like, I'm gonna hope that hope that it's great. Yeah. And for so, me, for me, sorry to interrupt, but oh, no, it's, just, no. um, it's similar story because when I I went to university. And I don't think I really blossomed in the first year or two. Mm-hmm. It was actually leaving New Zealand. I've got an accent, but I grew up here. Leaving New Zealand and moving to Japan. Oh, wow. And I was there for a year teaching English. And it was that experience of I'm literally on my own. And if I don't get enough money from teaching English, I can't pay rent. And I can't speak the language to explain it. You know what I mean? It was oh, like, yeah. this, is, this is my life. I need to embrace it. It's kind of similar um, process, I guess, that I went through. So it's funny you mentioned that. So uh, after my first year, Mm -hmm. going to Japan and teaching English became Mm -hmm. the plan, right? I was like, oh, this is an amazing opportunity. I've been really lucky at a young age to be able to travel. Mm -hmm. Um, So my grandmother, who, you know, had lived everywhere, Mm -hmm. uh, said, listen, you know, your your mother and your aunt got to see the world. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents weren't able to give me those experiences growing up. She was like, I can give that to you, mm, right? And then really? so we started to travel, and Japan was the second foreign country I ever visited. We wow. wanted to go back and see the the house that my mom was born in. Cool. And uh, I was like, I want to come back. You know. Then I found out this teaching English was a thing. It, it didn't come to fruition, but mm-hmm. that became like the first plan of like, what do I, what do you want to do when you're you're done the the, the schooling thing? Yeah, that's um, so cool. Yeah. Tell me about your grandmother. Ah, yeah. What what was it that she because I love those intergenerational relationships. And I think in Western culture, we've kind of dropped them in a bad way (laughs) in the sense of, oh, the person's retired and now they're going in retirement village and, you know, we'll visit them at Christmas time. And, but I, I, I think what we're about to have is this conversation about the richness and depth that generational learning can have, right? Oh, absolutely. Just tell us a bit about her and why, why she's kind of said, we're going together. Yeah, so I would say that my grandmother, in addition to being a very valued family member, mm. when I reflect on on the effect that she has had on my life, she was my first real mentor. Right. Right. And you know, that's I think there's so much value in intergenerational learning. You know, we talked about the unique circumstances that made me fall in love with school. You know, there's mm. another element at play there that I didn't recognize until you just asked this question, but yeah. it was mentorship. Right. You know, so those mentors, those adults that helped me along my learning journey mm-hmm. contributed to the, this this unique recipe that made mm. me fall in love with this thing. So my grandmother, very, very inspirational person to me, um, probably the most intelligent person I know, speaks multiple languages, mm. has lived everywhere you can think of, um, hammered, uh, hammered into me the value of learning. Um, How did she do that? Uh, with just pushing me to explore, to ask questions. Um, you know, it, it's funny, as much as an influence that she has had in my life, we're very, very different. Mm. So she's more on um, kind of the classic conservative end of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to be more on the liberal end. And so, you know, I would say, hey, I learned about this thing and she would press me on it, right? Mm-hmm. So some of that was driven by worldview for sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other piece of that is just, you should know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like there's two sides, there's a lot of sides to a story. Yeah, so she was uh, helping refine your thinking or I, I, forcing you to explain, right? Absolutely, <laughs> uh, really showed me how how amazing travel is, uh, helped me to devele a love for other cultures mm-hmm. and, and certainly for my own culture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And you know, th- those, those lessons still are at play. Like here I am in New Zealand, right? Yeah, right. Getting to, to, <laughs> to share uh, some of my work and getting just the ability to learn from all these amazing people. Yeah. Um, you know, she was that first domino in that row that, you know, as those dominoes fall, here I am in 2019. Yeah. Uh, so what was the first trip that you took with her? Was it? Ha, huh, yeah. So the first trip, because Japan was number two, you number said? two. Yeah, actually, no. Japan was number three. Oh, okay. Uh, the first trip she ever took us on, she took my brother and I to San Juan, Puerto Rico. Hmm. Um, more of a vacation, less of a, a cultural immersion. Hmm. Very quickly, my brother uh, learned that he was not a fan of flying. Okay. <laughs> so um, these larger ad- adventures that he was like, I am out. Like I can't handle that. I don't. To this day, I don't think he's gotten back on a plane. Right. Um, so we did that. Then we she took me to London, England, mm-hmm. and that was you know, transformational. You know, so what age my, were you at this time? I was thirteen. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't um, it? That's that's such that's so cool. <laughs> Yeah. So England, then a couple of years went by, I uh, went to Japan. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, it, it, there was trips throughout the U.S. for mm-hmm. sure, but those would be like the major, uh, major international trips. Mm-hmm. And then her health started to decline. Mm-hmm. She started to, you know, have trouble traveling. But that was like the birth of the internet. I right. See. So I was like, oh, you know, here are all these lessons you taught me about travel. Mm-hmm. I could book all this at, the push of a button. It's like when Expedia right. was a thing, right? Yeah. And uh, so she instilled in you the love of other cultures and, and learning and exploring. Yeah, all, all, everything. Yeah, yeah, love of food, right? Wow. Um, it just really broadened my horizons in yeah. a major, major way. Yeah, that's really special. And the thing I love to highlight, just to focus on a little bit, is what's the role that each of us play in other people's lives Mm -hmm. in the sense of there's two parts to this. The first one is the mentors that helped you become who you are. What role can we play for other people who are younger than us? Mm -hmm. Like I love that aspect, but then also the special relationship between a grandparent and a grandchild. And for the people who are listening who are grandparents, could you take your grandchild who's 12 or 13 and take them on a trip, not even overseas maybe, but just to feed into their lives at the start of their life, at the start of their journey. Absolutely. I I think one of the the most critical things we could do as adults, family Mm -hmm. or not, in relation to young people is just to let them know that they're loved and they're valued, Mm -hmm. right? And then everything else comes from that, whether it's a trip, it's a conversation, it's a hug, it's a question of how are you doing? How Mm -hmm. can I help you? Mm -hmm. Um, What questions do you have? And it all begins from there. Yeah. And that's the thing I love about this podcast is that their themes resonate. <laughs> so I just a month ago interviewed a guy named David Clifford um, from California, and we were talking about education and the future. And it's a great interview. Um, he was here to do a TEDx talk in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. And um, in the end, that was what he was saying is, look, you know, the numbers, the verb tenses, all of those things fade in importance if you can give the child a sense of belonging and you are special and part of something bigger, that's what they need. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. Well, thank you so much for diving in the rabbit hole with your yeah, yeah. relationship with your grandmother because yeah. I just love that. And, and I think the more that we can celebrate the previous generations, you know, it's so trendy to just say, well, the next generation has all the answers, but it's actually looking at the past as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, our view of the past should inform our view of the future as well. Yeah. So you get to the end of your first sort of year or so at university and, and you've fallen in love with it. (laughs) Does that, does that, um, what, what, what came next? Yeah. So, um, trying to figure out what comes next, Mm -hmm. right. was really the struggle. So uh, along the way, uh, I was able to intern for a place called the Center for Social and Economic Research. And this is where I really got to apply what I learned uh, really from the primary research Mm -hmm. uh, side of things. Mm -hmm. And that was an interesting dose of reality for me because I learned really quickly as much as I like learning about these things. Mm -hmm. I don't really so much love creating survey instruments and administ- you know, administering those things. Right. Um, so that was a little bit of a shock. Here's this thing that I, I really loved from a theoretical side, mm-hmm. right? And then when it came time to like 
do it and earn some money. I was not, not so excited about it. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, it was like one step forward, 10 steps back, right? Because I'd fallen in love with education, fallen in love with the subject matter, yet now I'm having this revelation that at least in terms of what I was exposed to, I, I don't want to do that mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So um, with that, I graduate and I'm like, okay, so Japan was going to be the thing. I think I might do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and along the way, I had really good friends that worked at a fairly successful tattoo shop. Hmm. And they said, hey, we we want to train up another tattooer. Hmm. And you know all of us, you know, your mother's an artist. Um, you, you've got some artistic uh, skill, very, very small amount. Um, would you be interested in apprenticing? So, yeah, I totally would. You know, this is a, an industry I really think is interesting. It's a craft I really respect. Um, so, like, what do I got to do? And they're like, get a job and then just spend all your free time here. You're basically going to work for free. Okay, cool. All right. I'm, I'm with that. This is more direction, right? Because um, I know at this point I'm forming a, a fairly solid notion of like what I don't want to do, mm-hmm. um, which is important, right? Not nearly as powerful as what you want to do, though. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that, I became an apprentice, you know, and I learned so much during that period about scheduling my time, about interacting with the public, um, really about kind of the beauty of the grind, right, of doing the same thing over and over and over as you kind of tick your way to a larger goal. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the people I worked with. Um, it is a craft that has no end, right? It, it's artistic and it's technical. And I, I learned something about myself in this is that I like things that have no end, mm. right? You can like keep peeling away that, that those layers of the onion, Um, but along the way I had like my first, what I call like true futures thinking moment Mm -hmm. where I'm looking around this shop and there's six guys that have been doing this for 10 plus years. They're excellent at it. I'm there. I'm a year, right? I go, if the economy tanks, one, who's going to have the disposable income just to spend on, on body art? And then two, if you had the choice to spend your hard-earned money with the guy that's been tattooing 10 plus years or the guy that's, you know, figuring out as he goes, who are you going to go with? And uh, at that point, I was like, you know what? I, I've got to figure something else out. Hmm. You know, as, as cool as this is, I think this might quickly become unsustainable. And if I'm having these second thoughts, because there's no end to this, I need to make room for that person that's absolutely sure, Mm. right? That can keep pushing the craft. Mm -hmm. So I left Mm. and I entered the corporate world, right? So, so severe turn, right? So at this point I went from from tattoo artists. Well, I went from a research Institute, right? (laughs) From a university to tattooing in a street shop to being a data analyst for a a large medical and science distributor. Mm. And again, this is part of the education, right? Mm. Um, so let's let's go there and talk about that next role. But I also want to ask an, a question about tattoos. Sure. Is that okay? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. If you go back, say, 20, 30 years, and you look at um, footage of NBA games, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, Michael Jordan, right? Like those athletes were incredible, but very few had tattoos. Mm-hmm. And now you look at an NBA game or anywhere, <laughs> yeah. there's lots of tattoos. What do you think has shifted, I guess, culturally or changed that's um, had, yeah, it's been such a vast shift from the, I guess, early 1990s, say, through to today? Yeah, I, I think the internet helped a lot with that, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, they became, you saw more images of people that were tattooed. Mm-hmm. You saw a higher level of tattooing, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't just the, the street shop on the corner, but mm-hmm. it was artists that have international renown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the craft begun to accelerate because of that. Mm-hmm. Popular culture pushed it that way. So things like Miami Inc. and having tattooing on cable TV mm-hmm. made it uh, palatable to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And then it, I think it was just critical mass. I also think that if you look at the time that tattooing kind of exploded, it was also a time of deep uncertainty with the economy right. um, and just general life, right? Yeah. Not that these times are any more certain, 
But tattooing gives you a certain level of certainty. Yeah, It's something on your body that you have complete control over yeah. for how it turns out. And I think that there's a psychological aspect to that too. Mm. So I think all these things kind of mesh together and mm. now you have a fairly tattoo friendly culture, which mm. it's, it's, that's wild. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. No, that's the word I was thinking of as well as control in the sense of you can, you, you decide yeah. what goes where. And I think maybe that's a, it would be a fascinating study to do, actually. You know, like an academic research into the what was it that that led to the society's perceptions, say, forty years ago. You know, yeah, yeah. How did it, how did it go from and, an outlaw yeah. type profession, right? The pirate life for me. Mm-hmm. I'm a biker, one percenter. Um, to yeah, as you said, at top athletes. It, it's uh, it's sometimes maybe more odd to see somebody not tattooed. That's right. Well, especially like if you looked at, say, NBA or something, you know, it's very rare that people don't have tattoos. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Sorry, another rabbit oh. hole there. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's just come back then. So you leave being a tattoo artist um, and working in that industry. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, what what happened next? Oh, that man. corporate world. Yeah. Wow. What a wake-up call that was, right? right. So, um <laughs> I went, I get hired for this corporate job and uh, really excited. It's more money than I've ever made mm-hmm. before and thought it'd be kind of interesting and got put on a team that we were all relatively the same age. But uh, it, it was like the classic American corporate environment. So mm-hmm. we would go in and nobody wanted to be there, right? People are just trying to get their eight hours in, mm-hmm. another day closer to retirement mm-hmm. and get home. Mm-hmm. The job I was in was it was very uh, process heavy, very detail oriented. Um, which again, this is part of my my learning and evolution. I learned that I am not built like that. Mm. Again, I like the messy, big questions. Right? right, I'm more of a conceptual thinker. This is good though. Each of your jobs, you're sort of discovering what you don't want to do. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's they're all lessons to be yeah. learned. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I spent some time there. I learned a lot. And really quickly learn from just a a values perspective. Mm. Like for me to work in a place at this point that I think I'm going to thrive, I've got to be around other people that are motivated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a universal feeling, right? You could be the most motivated person in a room, but if if everybody around you clearly doesn't want to be there, eventually it's going to get to you Mm. unless you inspire them in some way. Mm. Um, But, you know, this, this was just, again, learning experience. I learned that it was not for me. And I just, I applied to a job at random. Hmm. It was a cyber charter school. And lo and behold, it was across the street from where I worked. I had hmm. no idea. No idea. I just thought it sounded cool. Cyber wow. charter school at the time. I've never heard of such a thing. Right. So what year are we talking about? Oh, man. Like early 2000s? Or? Yeah, early 2000s, yeah. probably four, mm-hmm. maybe 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just love the name of it as well. It's so it's so of its time, you know, the it, cyber. Like it, it yeah. was it was all new at that point. You know, it, people yeah. forget today. You know, yeah. um, one of the presentations this morning, it was talking. You know, like the iPhone mm-hmm. two thousand and seven eight. Like that was when it was brand new. Yeah, and that's not that long ago. But um, you know, those terminology like cyber, it was like ooh. Oh, this yeah. is new, new, something new. <laughs> Pushing the frontier, right? Yeah. Bleeding so, edge. And so it's literally across the road from your existing work. Crazy. Like it was meant to be, right? <laughs> so um, I, I snuck out. I go to an interview on my lunch break. Right. Right. Which is maybe not the most ethical thing, but I was just done. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I met a woman that would become my boss and my mentor, right? So common theme here. Uh-huh. And we just hit it off. Huh. And she's like, listen, we're exploding. Like we need all the help we can get are you okay without a job description? Right. I said, yeah, of course. Sure. Because the only thing that I was judging the place on is when I walked in, if people seemed like they were motivated to be there, then I wanted to be there. I see. I'll learn. I'll figure out where I fit in, but I wanted a positive culture Hmm. and, uh, got in. Hmm. She was like, you're hired. Uh, I worked for the, her name was Marianne Dunn and just taught me really the value of being nice Hmm. in business. Right. Hmm. And, uh, so I, I, I got to learn the, the cyber charter system in PA really, really well, but I was still kind of lost, right? Like I, I've hopped a lot of places at this point. You mm-hmm. know, I know that I just wanted a place that it felt good to be in, right? People weren't were just ready to leave. I knew that I wasn't super detail-minded. And, you know, I had all this other experience dealing with people from tattooing. I, it, 
looking at research and survey methods. Mm. Maybe I can make something happen here. Um, so I'm still kind of finding my way here, you know, a floater, no job description. So I'm doing everything and anything that popped up. Mm -hmm. I'm having fun. Um, and along the way, a, a friend of mine, he was a professor uh, of philosophy at the University of Delaware in the States. He said, hey, I'm going to do this seminar. I've got this guy named Eric Garland coming in. He's a futurist. Like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> Sounds cool. But, you know, all the events that Chris had done prior to this uh, were, were really cool. So, so count me in. Yeah, Saturday, sure, I'll be there. So I go in, I sit down, and uh, Eric starts talking, and he does a, he does like an hour like mega trends in the U.S. and uh, a lot about the economy because it was right around the, the crash. Right. And I call it the lightning bolt moment, right, where it's like when you see something you can't unsee. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is amazing. Like I, I naturally think like this, right? I had no idea people could get paid to do this job. This is, is, this is amazing. So I'm having this really intense personal moment because now mm -hmm. I can answer that question. Like this is what I want to do. There's no end to this. You can't predict the future, right? So what makes a good futurist, right? Like that's, it's the ultimate riddle. Mm -hmm. So uh, he takes a break and I, I do the completely normal thing and I corner him. I'm like, this is, you're blowing my mind. Like, how do you, like, how did you get into this? Like, is there like a pathway? Like, just, just what? And he, he told me where he came from. He was a competitive intelligence guy and then ended up working for this legendary futurist named Joseph Coates and, and, you know, ended up opening his own firm. So I had an endpoint, but I didn't have a really super defined pathway to get there, but I'd never had an endpoint before. So right. I'm like, this is, this is like the best day of my life, you know? I sit back down at my table. We were sitting at tables in the round and my neighbor, a guy named Jim Lee, also a mentor to this day. He's like, Hey, I do what Eric does. I'm like, you do. He goes, yeah, but I, I specialize in sort of financial markets and geopolitical finance. So applying futures thinking to this, I went to the university of Houston. There's actually programs for this. There was, hmm. At the time there were three in the U S boom, I've got a pathway. <laughs> I never thought I'd go to grad school. That go home that night. I applied to University of Houston. I applied to the other uh, one of the other universities, University of Hawaii. Houston gets right back to me. And the more research I did, I wanted more pure method because I didn't really know how I wanted to apply this thing. Mm. Hawaii was alternative political futures. I already did the political science thing. I was mm -hmm. like, eh, maybe that's not for me. That's totally cool. Living in Hawaii definitely wouldn't be bad, mm -hmm. right? Not opposed to that. But Houston was just a better fit pure method and it was a synchronous online program hmm. so i wouldn't have to move to houston i love houston but also love pennsylvania um so then it was off to the races wow um it's really fascinating to me just hearing what you're saying as well and i'm just thinking about your grandmother who taught you the ability to have a open mind yeah because when i hear what you're saying each of the situations it's been quite unknown what you're getting into <laughs> you know like and i think it's just worth highlighting you know like your tattoo artist friend says hey why don't you come and do this your other friend says hey come to this university you know the the lady was it marianne yeah you know she's like well we don't have a job title but if you're interested then you can come work here and i think it's it says something about the attitude of of being flexible and open to those opportunities where you don't have a definite job title and yet you dive in yeah. be because there's some kind people in a good working environment. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been told that I have a fairly high tolerance for risk. Um, but I, to me it was more of maybe I have a deep seated fear of missing out too, right. but like I respected those people, mm -hmm. you know, they were kind, right. Obviously wanted to teach me something. So mm -hmm. I had faith that they had my best interests in mind mm -hmm. And also, you know, I thought it, it, at the very least it's a learning experience, mm. right? And I can keep moving on, right? That life is not fixed mm. by any means, mm. right? It, it's your perception of things is your reality. And, you know, I think that if you have a positive mental attitude and see things as learning lessons, mm -hmm. you, can, you can go really far. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I got hooked into Houston, mm -hmm. um, still working for the cyber school, right? And because Houston was all portfolio-based, um, I was doing a lot of forecasts on the future of where I worked because that's where I spend all my time. I see. And because I had this weird kind of floater job, I knew every department, 
right? And I knew their needs. So along the way, I had made uh, good, I, I was good friends with their director of communications. She and I were about the same age and I, you know, just chat with her in her office. She's like, you got to tell me about this program. It sounds super cool. I was like, yeah, here, do you want to see some of the work I did? I actually did like a series of scenarios on the future of the school. Right. I mean, this was like intro work, right? This was not great, but she took a look at it and goes, we could use this. Hmm. And I was like, really? So she marches me into the CEO's office and says, show him. I'm like, oh, great. Okay, yeah, cool. So here it is, right? Here's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And through that, I was able to recast my job. Wow. So I went from a floater. Now I get to write my own job description. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they got an internal futurist. Uh, I was largely attached to Carolyn in the communications department because she could use a lot of that larger context of how the outside world's changing to think about positioning for the cyber school. I worked with their tech department. So it was like the chance of a lifetime. Mm. So now I'm going to school for it. I'm practicing it. And then I just became absolutely productively obsessed. So when I wasn't doing those two things, anybody that knew more than me about this field, I wanted to learn from. So I worked, again, mentors, right? I, I, I have a good friend and mentor named Mike Courtney. He runs a boutique consultancy at uh, Dallas, Texas. So we did some really cool stuff around autonomous vehicles. I have another mentor in, uh, in England uh, that runs something called the European Futures Observatory. So I did a lot of geopolitics with him. Um, so I just wanted to build that portfolio, right? This mm. is, it's a process. It's a mindset. It's, it. You need to be able to apply it across lots of disciplines, in mm. my opinion, mm. right? Until you fall on that domain that you truly love. Mm. So you're seeking these people out actively and approaching them and saying... I was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just good to highlight these things so that the listeners know for their journeys. Because very often, you know, you, you kind of think, well... It, life will hand it to me on a plate, you know, never but does. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Does it? No, so I think not it's at important all. to highlight that actually, if you want something, sometimes you have to go out and, and make those connections and, at, and show the enthusiasm. Yeah. At the end of the day, you have to advocate for yourself. Mm. And the way I saw it was the worst thing they could say is no, mm-hmm. I'm basically offering free work, right? Like I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I don't care. Yeah. I just want to learn more from you. Yeah. Um, because I, I had the knowledge again, going into a field that is somewhat unknown. I've, well, I've seen a couple lately, but I'd never seen a want ad for a futurist. Mm. So I'm going to have to move a stream a pebble at a time, mm-hmm. right? And if I, I truly want to do this, it's up to me. Mm-hmm. So get as much experience as I can across as many domains as I can, get as published as much as I can, have any opportunity to get in front of people to, to speak, whether it's for free, because you're going to have to do that later too. Um, so really, really, really just putting my all into it. Mm-hmm. But it never seemed like work because I loved it so much. Because you'd had that lightning bolt moment back at that other talk, had, right? Well, and I had the lightning bolt moment, and I also had the other experiences that were not ideal. I see. I saw what the alternative was for me, mm-hmm. and I was I was just determined. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, keep going. Uh, yeah, keep keep building the portfolio, right? I, I keep doing work within the cyber school. I begin to think through so what's my ideal way of using futures thinking, Mm. right? This is a really, really powerful tool for thinking about systems transformation, Mm -hmm. for really beginning to understand change and fill a lot of times the void of around possibility. Mm. And I started to reflect on my own learning journey, right? Mm. So, you know, the experience uh, I had in school in rural Pennsylvania, Mm. um, looking at sort of, education as a system that we all touch and it's a ability to reweave a social fabric, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we no longer really live in a meritocracy, right? So not so much preparing you to thrive in a future of work, but to prepare you to thrive in life, right? Uh, as a key pillar to addressing equity issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really began to form this notion of it should be applied here. And as much as I love applying it you know, to different clients, you know, like the automotive industry, that's not part of my value. Sorry. That's not part of my value set. Mm-hmm. Um, if you sell another thousand autonomous vehicles, cause you're prepared for the future, that's totally great, but that's not my ideal use of this. Mm-hmm. So as I'm starting to form this, this idealized notion of, of what my practice could be like and, and the change that I would want to affect, 
Um, my current employer, KnowledgeWorks, uh, said they want to expand their own internal capacity to look at the future. Mm -hmm. So KnowledgeWorks has been doing educational futures work since 2006. Mm -hmm. So I follow their trajectory as a student. I was mm -hmm. big, big fans of their work. Um, my, my so boss, they've been on your radar for a while. Oh, totally. <laughs> um, Catherine Prince, who leads the work, mm -hmm. is, is my boss, my, my friend, mentor, and collaborator. I, yeah. I just I really looked up to Catherine. Mm -hmm. And we were always like two ships in the night, right? We would be at conferences, and I would see stuff she would put down, and she'd be going as I would be leaving. So I'd never interacted with her. Sure. But again, huge fan. And um, so... My program director from the University of Houston said, you and Catherine should talk. Um, they want to expand capacity. At the time, I was fairly happy in my role, though, mm. at the school. Mm. But again, formulating this ideal like vision of how you would apply this. Mm. And again, like the lightning bolt moment, um, within 10 minutes of talking to Catherine on the phone, I'm like, this is exactly how I've envisioned using this, mm. right? Um, you give away all your work, right? We have autonomy about what we get to pick, and then we get to spend the rest of the time working directly with stakeholders to help them, guide them through the future, mm. right? You know, either that's to, to clarify vision, to create future-facing plans, just ask better questions about the future. Mm. And I started making a lot of deals with myself at that point, because mm. it, it was this or nothing. Right. I wanted to work with Catherine. I wanted to be at KnowledgeWorks. Like, this is it. Like, you basically just read back to me my own vision for right. how this would work. And uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to land the position with them. Uh, so there's sort of synchronicity, isn't there, of the, oh, the, man. what they're doing, echoing with what you're wanting to do. and <laughs> Big, big time. Yeah. Synchronicity, serendipity. Whatever. Yeah. It, it was just amazing, right? And, you know, this long, long journey from tattoo artist right to the corporate world to mm. the cyber school landed me there i've been there ever since mm. uh we've been fortunate enough to expand the team we're a team of four now cool and it has been the most gratifying work i've ever done i'm honored to be a part of it mm. to be parts of conversations like this that that that, ha that are happening in Christchurch. Mm -hmm. um so can you just talk i mean uh, I've got two questions, but just yeah. to highlight again, I love how you keep saying this person was a mentor, this person was a mentor, because yeah. I think it's such a great word, and we don't do it enough. We don't recognize enough the people who've helped us and shaped us into who we are. So sure. I just want to acknowledge that, because I think it's, you know, for the people listening again, like, who are your mentors? Have you actively approached people and said, I'd love for you to be my mentor? Because I think there is that dynamic, isn't there? Like. Mm -hmm making a conscious effort there. Um, but then my two questions are, firstly, just tell us a bit more about KnowledgeWorks sure. and what you're actually involved in. And then I'd love to talk about some of that, you know, being a futurist, what does that actually involve? Ah, so these two things are very closely tied together. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so KnowledgeWorks is a national nonprofit mm -hmm. headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio, mm -hmm. and they do work primarily throughout the United States. We work in three big avenues. Uh, so the first of which I would consider policy and advocacy. Mm -hmm. So we work very closely with the federal uh, government and also state uh, state governments to really advocate for policy environments that would enable personalized learning at scale. Mm. We work at the level of practice. So we have a team of amazing educators that work on the ground. So in those states that have the right policy environments, We'll partner with school districts and learning communities to help them implement personalized competency-based learning. Okay. And then that third area that we work in is, is that's where Catherine and I and our team come in, and that's the future of learning. Mm -hmm. So we author publications, freely available forecasts, sense-making guides, and we're really exploring the longer-term uh, time horizons for, for related to change and mm. learning and education. Mm. So we typically look about 10 years out. Sometimes we'll go further. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll work in really three-year cycles. Mm. So the beginning of that cycle, we'll publish what I consider like a 30,000-foot view of the field. Mm. So what's changing? Uh, we typically focus on exogenous change or inbound change. Because as an educator, you, you have an intuitive sense of what's changing within education. Not everybody has the time to sit down and say, okay, well, let's think about machine learning and AI and climate volatility, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, if you're an educator, you're keeping the classroom afloat, mm -hmm. right? So we look at those things. So what are, are, what are the changes that we feel are most promising or most challenging? Um, 
and then begin to generate images. <coughs> Excuse me, fighting a little bit of a cold. Um, what are really the, the the images of the future that come about as we make certain assumptions about the the the, the velocity of change, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll do that, and then those off years will take deeper dives into other issue areas. So these would be um, maybe deeper forecasts into things like blockchain and AR and VR, AI. Um, what's it mean to create a learning ecosystem, things like that, mm-hmm. or author strategy guides. So you get all this stuff, right? And you're an educator or you're an innovator or policymaker. And then like, what do you do with it? Mm. So we, you know, we, we try to give you some things that maybe you could bring the future into your workplace a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then the other side of the house is when we're not creating content, uh, we're engaged in things like this. Right. So attending conferences, uh, giving talks. Um, we've dove pretty deeply into creating immersive experiences, mm-hmm. so experiential futures, so mm-hmm. people can kind of live the future and kick the tires on scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, workshops, multi-day engagements, really whatever a client or a stakeholder wants, uh, we'll, we'll really do our best to holistically mm-hmm. create an engagement for them so they can get the most miles out of whatever they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um that's yeah. cool. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I love that looking at the future, you know, like thinking 10 years, of course, then the big thing is like thinking 100 years, like, yeah, imagine if only we had a time machine, right? Like, You're to, right. Be able to, to look in the future. I just remember, you know, like, I've got my um, great grandmother's diaries from the 19, you know, 1915, 1916. So basically, time and wow and and you know she's just writing about her life and it's just fascinating because at that time you know they they just bought their first car you know Mm -hmm. like because it was just becoming accessible to people and and i just think in what would it be 2119 Mm -hmm. maybe somebody will be listening to this and going wow they just had no idea or yeah they were on the right track. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, some of column A, some of column B, right? Yeah, I think so. And just one thing you said earlier on in the interview about giving a child a grounding in, in you know, your special, your chosen, your, your mm-hmm. part here. The things that you're talking about in the future, like AR and VR and blockchain and all these things, how do you categorize them in your own mind when thinking about the future? Because mm. that underpinning what we're talking about is that grounding of an individual, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if those things are like tools that you take off of the wall or w- what's your feeling about yeah. that? Yeah. So, um, you know, broadly we would categorize them as a driver of change, right? So there's a lot of forces that shape the future. Mm-hmm. And they come at us at different velocities. So technology obviously changes much, much quicker than culture or nature mm-hmm. or even politics, right? Mm-hmm. So when I think about things like AR, VR, even blockchain to some extent, I think of them as enablers, Mm -hmm. right? They're they're pushing us into the future in some way. Um, Now the uncertainty is how they're deployed, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of scenarios, and we we heard a lot today, right, Mm -hmm. where these things are used as an additive, Mm -hmm. right, to to free up a teacher in some some instances so that there's more of that human interaction Mm -hmm. um, to create transformational learning experiences that put the the learner at the center. So that's one one scenario, right? Mm -hmm. But the future's uncertain, so we don't know. So we've got to manage that assumption. So there's other scenarios where those could be used to – and I think that there are less positive scenarios to replace human interaction, mm. right? So, you know, maybe there's a a cost to keeping a human in the classroom and, you know, we can give you personalized learning at face value through an adaptive learning platform and, hey, we're doing the thing, right? Or we, the future's here, but we haven't had to change any of our systemic issues, right? Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes it depends which day you catch me on when I'm yeah. thinking about these things. But I, I think that when I, I look at these things, that the main thing that comes to my mind is possibility, right? right? Yeah. And, you know, there's tension that we have to resolve with how they're deployed and, mm. and what that means. I think that there's larger issues we have to ask ourselves of, around how we want our systems of education to behave mm-hmm. and then factor in uh, technology on top of it and mm. use those as the accelerator or that push to, mm. to make those new systems happen. Mm. 
Yeah, I think I think we're talking about similar things using different words. Like I use the word tool, mm-hmm. you know, like we'd use this tool in this situation and you use the word enabler. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, it's a similar type of concept, isn't it? Like helping the person. And one thing you've mentioned a couple of times is the personalized learning. Mm-hmm. Can you just unpack what that means? Like obviously yeah. we're all individuals and For sure. what, what is that? What does it mean from your Yeah, so broadly defined, um, I would say that it is um, a learning experience or a learning journey that mm-hmm. is putting the learner at the center. So it's designed around really three big pillars, mm-hmm. a learner's needs, mm-hmm. interests, and goals. Right. To me, it has to start with the needs first, right? That becomes the, the critical foundation and then also the critical feature, right, if, if we had true systemic transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a lot of people that believe that to really look at a more equitable future of learning, it's a non-negotiable to start with the supports first, Mm -hmm. right? And not cookie cutter supports, not interventions, but how can I really give you holistic targeted supports that speak to who you are and your unique needs versus mine? Right. So then once we have that on top of that, we can build your learning journey around your your, uh, interests and your goals. Right. What do you want to be when you want to grow up? You know, how do you like to learn the most? Maybe you like STEM or STEAM or or maker education. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're a project-based learning person. Maybe you like interdisciplinary learning. It's all good stuff, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's a big umbrella term for which you could put a lot of different emerging styles of education in mm-hmm. there. Yeah, that's good. It does make me think of your own experience, though, as well. You know, what your grandmother taught you, which was sort of a love of learning. Mm-hmm. And then it it's manifested out in multiple ways through your life, as we've heard. Yeah, yeah. Um, which ultimately is, I think, what education is about, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. If you can, you know here's a fish, here's how to catch a fish, that's sort of a picture, isn't it? Like, yeah. 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 But if you can teach a love of learning, then you'll probably be, be okay. Yeah, and I think that's one of the highest aspirations that our educational system can have, mm-hmm. right? It's not to prepare you to be the worker of the future, right? Yeah. I think it's to create the conditions to enable effective lifelong and life-wide learning, mm. right? It's to catch the fish. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. So I'd be remiss not to ask you, it's 2029, because we just went in that time machine over there. Okay. <laughs> what What does the future hold for learning? Yeah. So I have increasingly been thinking that that this personalized future that I've been talking about in broad strokes is less of an uncertainty and more of a normative future. Right. So looking at sort of analogous settings of outside sectors and industries mm-hmm. and looking at trend lines, I think that, you know, here we sit in 2029, that every child has access to meaningful personalized learning every child, not just 70% or, or a dominant culture, mm. um, that learning is wholly human-centered, right? It's designed to not only bring out the best of you academically, but physically, emotionally, cognitively, everything. Mm-hmm. Learning is more distributed and decentralized because we have to keep up with the personalized nature, right? And for that, a centralized system probably isn't going to work well. Mm. And that learning is largely open-walled and governed and shaped as an ecosystem. Mm. So rather than looking at scalable efficiencies, we have you know things like the City of Learning Christchurch that could be a catalyst for true open-walled learning so that there's no faulty distinction anymore between education and learning. Mm. We're learning all the time. Mm. Just some of it's counted when it happens within these four walls, and the other stuff is nice but doesn't count it. So we would have a seamless blending in terms of formal and informal learning, there'd be no distinction. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's my vision, right? And I think is becoming a, a plausible future as well. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, it's been fascinating to hear about your own life story and sort of how it's weaved into what you're doing today. And I think there's lots of connections there that people will get from this interview. And what we'll do is in the show notes, put some links to anything you send me sure. so people can then dive deeper if they want to go to KnowledgeWorks website and, and find it. They can just click through and, and get some more information. But Terrific. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I loved your grandmother. <laughs> it's Thank inspirational you. to hear about someone like that who who gave you that, you know, the courage really to to go on a lifelong learning adventure. So, oh, thank yeah. you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jason. I know for me there were many things that stood out. As you could tell, I really appreciated his comments about his grandmother because I think that intergenerational learning is so important. Have a look in the show notes for some other information about Jason. Until next time. Mm-hmm.